John chapter 12. We'll, Lord willing, be covering the first 11 verses of this chapter. I'll read it, we'll pray, and then dive into God's Word together. John 12, verses 1 and following. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going, and were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the inerrant word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we bless you together, Lord. At the start of a new year, we look back and we thank you and we bless you. And God, I'm even mindful of every trial we have had as individuals, as families, as a church. And Lord, we say together, thank you for your wisdom in dealing with us. Lord, we rejoice in the trials that you've seen fit in your wisdom to allow us to go through that you've bestowed on us. And Lord of glory, your word tells us when trials come to rejoice. The world tells us that we're cursed when we face trials. And sometimes, Lord, even our own flesh, we want to complain and we want to murmur. And we want to even secretly accuse you in our hearts of not being good to us. But we as a people say together that you are always good. And that you have dealt with us in your wisdom. And so Lord, we come to you right now and we ask help us to count all things as joy. Even trials. Help us not to be surprised when fiery trials come upon us, help us to rejoice in trials. Help us to consider these present sufferings not worth comparing to the eternal glory we will experience with you. We bless you, Father, and we believe we are blessed by you because by your grace, we've come to call you Abba, Father. And by your grace, you have washed us of our sins with the blood of Jesus. And because we have a comforter 
And so, Lord Jesus, as the people of God, we gather here now, and as we're going to see acts of worship and acts of betrayal, acts of devotion and acts of defection, Lord, we ask that you would search our hearts and purify us, that we might be able to present to you pure worship as those who have been bought with the blood of Christ. I ask for your help in teaching, Lord. I ask that your spirit would search our spirits and that if there be any wayward thing in us, you would correct it. If there be any place that your sheep need comfort, would you come and as the good shepherd comfort? And Lord, not to earn something from you, but because you have given all for us, we want to present our bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to you. We love you, Lord Jesus, because you first loved us. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The title of this sermon is Devotion or Defection. And truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Mark chapter 14, the Lord Jesus himself speaking. Now what great act could elicit so great a commendation from the Lord Jesus? What great thing that could be done could have Jesus say, let me tell you something, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the entire world, they're going to hear about what this woman did. Well, it's nothing other than the simple, humble worship that Mary, mother of Martha, or sister of Martha and sister of Lazarus offered the Lord Jesus here at this meal in Bethany. It's the worship of Mary. As we come to John chapter 12, we are in the final week of Jesus's life. It is six days before the Passover. And as we are familiar with, Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to be betrayed by one of his own, and he's going to be crucified unjustly on a cross. So it's the final week of Jesus' life. And leading into this, he has just done the greatest miracle that he has done yet of raising Lazarus from the dead, resurrecting him. And it is this resurrection that prefigures the greater resurrection that he himself will do. It's a few days before Passover, and as the verses before this say, people were going to Jerusalem, and Bethany is but two miles outside of Jerusalem, they were going there to purify themselves. These were ceremonial acts to remember what God did in freeing the uh, Israelites from the land of Egypt. They were going to purify themselves. And so as he comes two miles outside of Jerusalem a week before Passover, he himself being the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world We see in him what the true purification act will be. And so what we have before us in John chapter 12, it's a portrait. It's the slowing down of time. 
We've seen signs and miracles and teachings and everything has been like a rush through the gospel of John, even at our pace. And in this last week, we come to one room and one meal with the one Lord Jesus. And we have a portrait of two contrasting characters. First, we have Mary in her self-forgetful devotion and adoration of her Lord. But contrasting to Mary, there is Judas in selfish defection and contempt of Jesus. And so as we come to these two contrasting characters, we see one picture of devotion and we see one picture of defection. And as we go through these two pictures, it is an opportunity for us to examine ourselves. Now at the outset, I think we can all admit we know who we want to be. (laughs) I'm Mary and fill in the blank here is definitely Judas. Now what's interesting about that is the one person in this story who says they're the wrong person is himself Judas. He's the one who calls out others. He's the one who says, why didn't you do this? They should have done that. So as we're going to look at these two characters, my, my imploring for you, my request is that you would pray for your own heart. Lord, help me, help me search my heart. Is my worship before you pure? Lord, is there any rebel thought in my own heart? And if someone comes to your mind, say, Lord, help me and show me first what I need to see in myself. And it's right for us to remember this. There was a point in history that if you had taken a snapshot of Peter and Judas, they would have looked like the exact same person. Both betrayed the Lord Jesus. Both acted in cowardly ways. Both made immense mistakes and sins. But the difference between them was not one ended up being a better person but one simply threw themselves upon the grace and mercy of Jesus. So with that said, let's first look at the act of devotion. Verses 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, as I said, we're going to be focusing on Mary today, but I want us to see how Martha and Lazarus love the Lord in their own ways. How Martha characteristically is serving the Lord Jesus. She can't stay on the couch. She has to do something. She has to make another dish. She has to clean the kitchen. She has to make the place nice for the Lord. And Lazarus, he's one whom Jesus loved. And where do we see him? We see him just reclining at the table with Jesus. In this culture, reclining at the table would look like having probably some pillows on the ground and an elbow on the table and eating with one hand. And so your feet are in the back and you're all kind of laying down with each other reclined. You see Lazarus in close companionship to Jesus. You see Martha serving her Lord. And we'd be wise to see in this that being a disciple of Jesus does not mean taking on another person's personality. 
It doesn't mean conforming to the image of any human in this world, but that when the Lord calls us, he calls us as we are and to use the gifts and the way he's made us to serve himself. As followers of Christ, we don't cease to be ourselves, but instead we begin to find joy in living the life God gave us for God's glory as he made us. You see Mary, you see Martha, you see Lazarus. In verse 3, Mary appears on the scene and she comes and she shows us an act of true worship and devotion. Read with me verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. As we consider this act of Mary taking what's an expensive perfume, a pound of it, what we're going to find out later is 300 denarii. The modern equivalent would be about an entire year's wage. 40, maybe 50, maybe $60,000 poured out at the feet of Jesus. What can we learn from her act of worship and our worship for the Lord Jesus? Well, the first thing we can say is that true devotion, true worship is lowly. It is lowly. We see that it is at the feet of Jesus that Mary is pictured in John chapter 12. Three of the most significant times we see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. Martha, characteristically, is serving in the kitchen that one time. But what does Mary do? She takes the good portion. She sits at the feet of Jesus and is with him. When her brother Lazarus has died and she feels like she's lost all hope, what does Mary do? She casts herself at the feet of Jesus. And when they get to have a dinner for the Lord Jesus and she forgets about herself and she forgets about the context she's in. What does she do? She goes and she gives an act of worship and devotion at the feet of Jesus. And this is truly where all real devotion starts. The feet of Jesus is where it all starts. Now, at Jesus' feet, this isn't simply a location, though it is that. There's also the idea in Hebrew, it's an idiom for learning from someone. To sit at the feet of the rabbi is to take in all of their teachings. Mary is constantly learning in the school of Christ. In the next chapter, Jesus is going to wash his disciples' feet. So what is John saying here? where Mary is the one and goes and anoints Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. What it's saying is that Mary was a constant learner at the feet of Jesus. Now look, when we talk about worship, if you start by saying, what grand thing shall I do for God? Your worship will not often be lowly. It will not often be humble. True worship is self-forgetful. It doesn't think of how great and grand the act of devotion is. It sees Jesus as the object of worship and says anything is worth giving to him. You see, Mary knew her place 
was to humble herself before the Lord and to learn from him. Well, how can we today sit at the feet of Jesus? The Lord himself isn't right here physically by our side. How can we do this? Well, there isn't, there isn't a secret kind of knowledge key to this. You can all sit at the feet of Jesus by giving yourself to his word. By humbling yourself and opening the word that God's spirit inspired and learning what God is like. Learning how he has revealed himself to us. Let me ask you, do you humbly recognize that you need to learn from Jesus? A true worshiper is not one who says, I just worship. A worshiper is one who says, I need the Lord and he is everything for me. And worship naturally follows. How can we sit at the feet of Jesus by humbling ourselves, starting where we are, opening his word, saying, God, help me learn and learning from the God who has spoken to us in his word. Very practically, my suggestion is jump on the reading plan that we are doing as a church and jump on where you are. Look, if the thought of reading four chapters a day terrifies you, you don't need to read four chapters a day right now. Start with one chapter at the feet of the Lord Jesus. Find who he is. Pray and thanks back to him. Humble yourself and take a lowly spot of devotion and worship to God. But something else we should recognize about Jesus or about Mary and her sitting at the feet of Jesus is I think she started to realize a lot of things that the disciples missed. You see, Jesus in the next chapter, he's going to start washing his disciples' feet. And they all forgot to wash his feet. Nobody thought of it. It was the role of the servant. And Jesus starts washing their feet. And so Peter says, you can't do that to me. And Jesus has to say to him, hey, unless I wash you, you can't be clean. And then Peter overreacts. But what do we see in Mary? We see that she has been listening to Jesus. We see that she has been learning from him. And so what does she do? She takes the humble act of servant and she washes his feet. But she just doesn't wash it with water. She knows something of his worth. She gives all that she has to anoint and to wash Jesus. You see, worship is going to be lowly, but it's because we know the worth and the grandeur of God. Mary knew something of the character of Jesus. Mary saw Jesus raise her brother from the dead. Mary knew the compassion of Christ because she had taken the lowly place and she had sat at his feet. The second thing we'll see about the devotion of Mary is that her worship, her devotion is lavish. She took a pound of expensive ointment, verse 4, made from pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. This is expensive perfume. We've already said how much it costs But what we can kind of miss that is filled in with the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark is that she has an alabaster jar and she breaks it. Never to be used again, it seems. 
that whatever is poured out isn't going back into the bottle. And that she actually starts on the head, another gospel tells us, but here it's pictured, it's gone all the way down to his feet. It's not just a spray, but it's a pouring out of all she has, and it's lavish. It's a year's wages. It's one check given. That is an entire year's worth of earnings. She gave the best that she had to the Lord. And as we see her give the best that she had, we can't help but ask ourselves, do we, do we give the best we have to the Lord Jesus? Now at this point, it's worth pointing out that uh, John Calvin remarks that this isn't meant to be the perpetual norm for worship, right? We're not meant from Mary's example to say she gave a year's worth. Every time you worship God, it's got to be $50,000, That would be kind of missing the the point. This was an extraordinary moment in time. We're not all called to go and buy Dolce & Gabbana or Prada perfume and cast it down on the ground each Sunday. But what, what are we meant to do? We are meant to give the best we can with where we're at, at the feet of Jesus. What does this look like for us? Well, do you give the best time you have to the Lord. Some of us, some of us are utterly worthless without a pot of coffee in the morning. You probably don't want to spend that time in persistent prayer because it's not the best time you have to give to the Lord. Do we give the best, what we can of our finances to God? Do we give in our worship the best we can? Or is it distracted and half-hearted and answering a text message and refreshing the feed we have? Do we give the love we have to the Lord Jesus and to his people? Do we serve him? Do we give the best of what we can to the Lord? Now we should ask right here, why does Mary give her best. Because what we're not after is simply a be like Mary for the sake of Mary sermon. We need to ask ourselves, why does Mary give her best? And so imagine with me, if you could, this isn't, uh, imagine with me, if you could be in that room and you could ask Mary, why did you give all of that perfume? What might she have said? I think she might say something like, do you know he rose my brother from the dead? Do you know who Jesus is? Think of who Mary has seen Jesus to be. That he has power over life and death. He has power over disease. That no one's ever taught like he's taught. And so if you would say to her, why would you give that? What would she say in response? She might say something like, do you know who he is? She might say, because nothing's too good to give to Jesus. And we can imagine about what she might say, but here's the truth. You know even more than Mary ever knew. You knew that you now know that this was a week 
before he would go and be slain, crucified on a cross. You know that that wasn't just an unjust act, but that was him giving his life to forgive your sins. You know that he would raise from the dead, that he would forgive Peter, that he would send his spirit upon his church. In light of what he has given, can we really say anything we could do would be lavish for Jesus? You know even more than Mary. Her worship is lowly. It is, in a matter of speaking, lavish. It is also, and I tried to struggle to find a word to capture this, but it's, it's lingering. What we see in the second half of verse 3 is that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That you couldn't be in this place and really miss it. And that it wasn't just something of sight. It wasn't just something you heard. It was something of smell. It was something that totally filled your nostrils. And it was fragrant. Her worship was lingering. And it lasted past just the moment of the breaking of the alabaster flask. Her worship was lingering. The house was filled with fragrance. What This is to say that her life itself actually had an aroma. Paul later picks up on this metaphor and says, we're the aroma of Christ to this world. And our worship and devotion, it's meant to be fragrance to this world. It's meant for other people to take in and say, there's something so different about this. Have you ever met someone whose life itself was fragrant because of their devotion to the Lord. People could tell you the same exact things, same exact words verbatim that they would say, but when this person says it, it makes all the difference in the world because you just know that they believe it. I have an older pastor friend, and like many of us this past year, could struggle to think, oh no, what if this, this, and this happens? Anybody struggle with worry the past year? And he would just look me in the eyes and tell me, Travis, God will take better care of you than anyone else ever can. And I think I had told myself that 20 times, but when he told me it, because his life was a true fragrant offering to Jesus, I took it in and I knew it was true. Is your life giving off a fragrant offering, a fragrance to the world who needs to know the hope that is in Christ. Not only is her worship lowly and lavish and lingering, but it is itself truly a living sacrifice. This act of worship, giving away a year's worth of wages itself appears to be a living sacrifice. She isn't going to have those living wages she would have had before, but indeed her whole life is a sacrifice. She willingly gave it away in a moment. And as we look at ourselves and as I consider my own heart, I can see that I and we so often clutch tightly on our own securities. We clutch tightly to our savings. We clutch tightly to our possessions. 
and I can give this and this as long as at the end of the day, I know I'll be secure. But Mary didn't take concern. As we learned last week of what not to fear, we see in Mary, her not fearing these things. She didn't fear the future. She didn't fear what man was going to think of her. These other male disciples, she didn't fear what might happen. She wasn't, she wasn't expecting or operating according to the worldly business pragmatism of this world. She didn't think, well, if I sell this perfume and I double it down, then maybe I can give the Lord even more. She just gave all she had to the Lord. She gave all she had. And she, she even put down her hair. She let down her hair, which at this time in this culture was a scandalous thing. It wasn't a thing the Bible says you cannot do that, but it was something that women just didn't do. Their hair was their honor and they weren't to let it down in this kind of a situation. But in self-forgetfulness, she let it down and she gave all her devotion to Jesus. And she maybe wasn't even thinking this, but she was living this, that he's worth more than all of this. She could say, I don't care what they'll say because Jesus is Lord. And I don't fear the future because Jesus is Lord. And I don't operate according to the world's wisdom because this world's passing away. And I found the one who's sovereign over this world. She could say with that hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, were the whole realm of nature mine. That would be an offering far too small. She said, if I could give everything, it wouldn't be enough. It would be a drop in the bucket. Her life is a living sacrifice. But think of the sacrifice Christ actually made for us. We said we can't have this be a just be like Mary sermon, right? The last thing we need struggling through 2020 coming into church and needing grace is to hear a sermon of worship harder. But in one sense I do want to say this, be like Mary. How? Humble yourself. Find in Christ all you need. Think of Mary as her brother was dead. And her only hope is what Jesus could possibly do for her. Be like Mary and find all of your hope in Jesus. Be like Mary and see the worthiness of Christ. Be like Mary and humble yourself before him. And worship him simply because he is worthy of worship. But this is a contrasting scene. It's not only about Mary. And verse 4 introduces another character. But Judas Iscariot. In Judas Iscariot we will see what heartbreaking defection looks like. Verse 4 and following, But Judas Iscariot, 
one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. We see in Judas a picture of defection. And now as we look at him, my encouragement to us is to search our own hearts for any ounce that might be in our own heart. And hear me, if you see this in your heart, simply repent and run to the Lord Jesus. Say, God, make my worship pure. Don't, I don't want to be like that. Give me grace. Put your spirit inside of me to help me in this. The first thing we see about Judas, like much false worship, is that he was simply seeking to be practical. He was seeking to be pragmatic. Judas sees this act of worship and he appeals to the best of worldly wisdom. Judas says, I can't believe it. Do you know what should have been done? You should have given that to poor people. And admittedly, everyone looking around probably said, nah, he kind of has a point. Like this is all gone now. Wouldn't have done some more good to giving it to the poor. He looks at the worship of Mary and he says, that is a waste. He operates according to worldly wisdom. What you need to know about worldly wisdom is that worldly wisdom often veils true motives. And it thinks nothing of the world to come. The wisdom of this world is almost always true if there was no God in heaven. It makes complete sense the parable that Jesus tells of the rich man that built many barns to store up all of his treasures. If you get too much treasure and you don't have a place to store it, you should build another barn. If there's no God in heaven, he didn't recognize that that very day his soul would be demanded of him. And so what's all of his treasure? Given the fact that this world is passing away. And listen, church, as we face temptations in this life, something you need to know is the devil is just about always pragmatic. Devil will say, don't give that money because you can do a lot more good with that money. Live together before marriage to save money. It's the responsible thing to do. And you'll have enough self-control. Skip controversial beliefs so people will like you and be more receptive to hearing the easier stuff. You know, uh, in those gray areas of tax law, who can really say, why not give yourself a helping hand? Why not, why not round up on that number for yourself and round down for them? The devil will always be pragmatic as he tempts us but he also always lies about the worth of Christ. And he always takes God out of the equation. In our decision-making, in our worship, let us not seek to be simply practical according to this world, 
but to be even more practical and realize eternity is to come and make every single decision in light of that. Not to fear the rulers of this world, but to fear the ruler of the whole universe who will one day appear. Judas was pragmatic, but he was too short-sighted. Are we, in our worship, being overly pragmatic according to the wisdom of this world? The second thing we see in Judas is that he's hypocritical. He says, we should, you should really give that money to the poor. But the narrator, John, tells us he doesn't really care about the poor. He's hypocritical. He says, don't do that, but he does it in his own heart meaning. His devotion is hypocritical. And we know this. We know there's organizations in this world that talk all about how much they care about life, and they're all about murder. And honestly, as Christians, sometimes we can get outraged about the social sins of the world while we harbor secret sin in our own hearts. And that's hypocritical. Our devotion needs to not look different on the inside than on the outside. We must be the same people in private as we are in public. Robert Murray McShane, who devised the reading plan we're going through, said, a man is what he is on his knees before God, that and nothing else. And in the life to come, you'll bring nothing of this world to God. Your own soul will you give to him. Is there any secret thing you're clutching? Christ will never cast out any who come to him. But let us not be hypocrites in our devotion to the Lord. The third thing we see in Judas is that his devotion is a hollow display. It's hollow. It's it's gut-wrenching, but Judas keeps on going with the disciples for about another week. He, he blended in with them. It looked like one thing, but it was another. And the hollow display of Judas, a good, it sounds like a good thing given to the poor, and it is a good thing, but his heart was hollow, and it wasn't full of love for the poor or for Christ. And this is probably the most scary thing we see in Judas, is that it's hollow. That it's not true. You see, pragmatism at the foot of the cross will be forgiven. And have we not all erred and made a foolish decision just seeking to be practical? In hypocrisy, hypocrisy, if you are a Christian, that was one of the sins you brought to the cross when you came to him. None of us, none of us had, have lived lives free of hypocrisy. That will be forgiven. And listen, this, a hollow display, it can be forgiven, but what's so scary about it is it's not willing to be honest. It says one thing and means the exact opposite. The most chilling aspect of defection from Christ is that you realize all the 
worship and devotion given was hollow. All the acts were heartless. So let me ask you, if if you've been just clutching, white-knuckling your way through the Christian life, saying maybe God will eventually bless me for what I do for Him, but you don't have true love for Him, I'm here to tell you there's a better way, and it's the way of grace and forgiveness. To recognize that you are owed nothing by God, but that through faith in Christ, He would give you the world. He would give you his son. He would forgive all of your sins. And so if there's in any of us, as it says in Psalm 95, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. Don't say, well, what would people think? Don't be practical. Don't be pragmatic. Cast yourself upon the grace of Jesus Christ. Don't let your acts of devotion be hollow. If you don't have love for Christ, what should you do? Cast your feet at the feet of Jesus. Cast yourself at the feet of Jesus. Realize who Christ is. Verse 7 Jesus defends Mary. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you but you do not always have me. And I love this. Jesus essentially says, her worship is right. What she did is good. And Mary in that moment, hearing from other people, why did you do that? She could probably feel, did I make a huge mistake? And sometimes in life, living for Christ, it feels like, did I make a mistake? Was that not even real worship but what does jesus say he says no your devotion is not in vain it's not pointless christ sees true worship and he always will reward it and secondly he says a verse that's been misquoted at times or misapplied the poor you'll always have with you but you won't always have me now some people say look jesus said poverty is always going to be here so who cares If you're a Christian, you know that's a bogus interpretation. Because he who was rich was made poor for your sake. And we were the most poor of the world, so how could we not care for those in need? And honestly, our church needs to do a better job of this. And we should ask the Lord to help us with this. But behind this, Jesus is also saying this, that he didn't come to just eliminate earthly poverty. And that until he comes again, There will be, this will be a fallen world. And so do the thing that's of the most value, that's of eternal value, and give your worship to Christ. John Calvin says also today, maybe for us, isn't going to look like just throwing perfume on the ground, but actually our devotion is helping the poor, is giving to them, but it is always recognizing That Christianity isn't just about making society better. It's about worshiping the Lord of this universe who will make all things new and is, before he makes it completely new, bringing his kingdom to come here on earth. The next 
three verses are a bit of transition, but they have a final lesson for us. And the final lesson is this, that true worshipers in this world will have trouble. Verses 9 through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. And we can understand that, right? The guy was raised from the dead and he's just in Santa Barbara? Come on, let's go. Let's get a motor. Let's get a, like, <laughs> let's get a train going and hop up there and see the guy that was raised from the dead. So a, so a crowd starts to form there because Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, was there. Verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So here's a few truths, church. First, there will be threats if you follow Jesus. There will be hardships. There will be trials. Secondly, those threats can be scary. The chief priests, they got together and they said, Lazarus is drawing people to Christ. Okay, let's kill Lazarus too. One day, people may come after your life. They'll come after your possessions. They'll come after your character. They'll come after your things. If you follow Christ, you will have troubles. But those threats are ultimately, when you think about them, insane. They said, they're going to see Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead? Okay, let's kill Lazarus. And what? Jesus is going to raise him from the dead again? He already did that. You're going to kill Jesus? He raised another guy from the dead. And he's been constantly saying, I'll raise myself from the dead. These threats are ultimately, while on first glance scary, while on first glance we want to cower back, they're hollow themselves. Kill Lazarus. Well, Jesus will raise him from the dead. Well, they'll take our stuff. Well, that's ultimately passing away. And our riches are in heaven. Well, they'll make plans and bad plans. Plans that'll hurt Jesus. But what do we find out? As it says in the books, the book of Acts, those plans they made to kill Jesus were according to the definite plan of God. All the plans of those who come against the church of Jesus Christ will themselves have been seen to be made according to the wisdom of God to accomplish his purposes. And so as threats come, we appeal to the wisdom of God. We find our comfort in the love of God. So what do we do with all these things this week? Well, we'd be remiss after seeing Mary, not ourselves this week, to sit at the feet of Jesus. Sit at his feet. Go and take time to be with the one who holds the universe together. The one who gave himself for you. Also search your heart. Let us all search our hearts for any rebellious, defectious thoughts that we would have. Anything that would rob Christ of his glory. And let's repent of that. And thirdly, let's live in light of eternity. 
Mary lived in light of eternity. And so that year's wage of perfume she poured, it was a drop in the bucket. But to Judas, living just for this world, it was everything for him. It caused him to betray Jesus. Let us not live just for this world, but let us live for the world to come. Let's pray. Jesus, I do just want to say with the hymn writer, were the whole realm of nature ours, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Jesus, I ask that as we sing these songs, as we take the meal that you provided for us, and as we remember that you forgave us of our sins, that you would purify our hearts, that true worship would go and raise up to heaven, and that you would see it. And Lord, we do confess before you, none of us are without sin. And none of us are saved according to our worship. We worship just because you've saved us. And Lord, we as a church, we need you. And we ask that in every way, you would be glorified through our lives. Would our lives be living sacrifice to you, holy and pleasing in your sight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.